Okay, well, this seminar for nonprofits is about decisions, decision making, both in your personal life, but more focused on decision making in your organizations. Let me introduce myself. My name is Stephen Grabner, and I'm currently vice president with an organization called OCI, Outpost Centers International. We have around 75 ministries around the world that we work with. So I sit on a lot of boards, I do a lot of um, helping with leaders, consulting with leaders. For 10 years, I was a missionary in Africa, a place called Riverside Farm, and for 11 years before that, uh, I was a pastor in southern New England. And leadership's been a special study of mine for the past number of years, because as Ellen White makes a comment in the testimonies, you know, the level of a church only gets really as far as the spirituality of the leadership in that church. Same thing in organizations. And I think we can look at different organizations and see how leadership decisions, board decisions, individual leadership decisions, have either contributed toward the success or the failures of those organizations. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is, is decision making, the process of decision making. Um, you should have a handout with you as well. And, whoops, pardon me. Should have a handout, and I'm, I may be good in leadership, but I'm really technical, technologically challenged. <laughs> Me too. Okay, you too. So what we're going to talk about, I, I found this on the internet. I thought it was a great illustration for the complexity of decision making. But you can relax. We're not really going to talk about that chart and fill your mind with all that. I really want to kind of hone things down. And just as we begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you been involved in an organization, uh, either a ministry or a church, a nonprofit, something like that, in which you can look back and think bad decisions have been made? Anybody? Yeah. So just do me a favor and just jot that down on the top of your paper. Okay, we're going to come back to that hopefully later as we go through this. And, you know, think of a specific incident where you were with an organization and some, you know, decisions went the wrong direction. And the reason I want you to do that is because as we go through this process together, I'm hoping that you'll be able to reflect on that situation and be able to pull some of the things we talk about and say, you know, I think that contributed to our poor decision. Because our whole purpose this morning is not just to find out about bad decisions, it's really to learn how to make better decisions, just to make good decisions. And so we have two purposes this morning. I think they're on your handout. I believe they are. Um, first is, sorry, that's a little light, to identify key decision-making saboteurs, things that will derail the decision-making process. And, you know, most of us, when we go through a decision process, and if we were to talk about, you know, what went wrong, it's easy to say, well, hindsight is always 2020. And hindsight is 2020. Boy, we look back, you know, I really wouldn't have done that, I would have done this. But too often we use that as a kind of a cloak for not learning from our mistakes. And it's like, okay, well, you know, hindsight's 2020. I wish I would have known that. I didn't know that. I made the best decision I made. And maybe we did. But maybe we were tripped up 
by some sabotage, some certain things that happen in the decision-making process. And then secondly, um, I hope that we can identify some ways to improve our decision-making. So again, identifying areas that'll trip us up and then looking forward to ways that can improve. Now on your handout, there's a couple of Bible verses I wanted to share with you. I'm sure they're familiar to you. And it's interesting to me that in Proverbs, in two places, we get almost the exact same quote. There's certainly the key emphasis. Where, there, where no counsel is, what happens? People fall. People fall. People perish, depending on a translation. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. That's a real truth, that there's a value, that there's a power in teams. Now, you're probably familiar, maybe you're not, you're probably familiar with the TV show, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Well, I've never seen it, I've only heard about it. But as far as I understand, question and answer, and when you're being asked the question, one of the things you can do to get a right answer is what? What are the different ways, if you have any idea? You can ask the audience. And the audience is right an astounding 95% of the time. Now that's amazing. Here you get this group of people, and if you were to ask them as a group, the audience is right about 95% of the time. At the GC, those of you who were there, there was a um, a ministry that talked about God as the elephant in the church. I forgot the name of it exactly, but they had a jar of peanuts, about that high, and the whole thing was they wanted people to guess how many peanuts were in there, and then they were giving a prize. I forgot what the prize was. Most times, the aggregate, the average, of all the answers, all the guesses, will be the closest. So you know, I had this idea, I was going to stand there and I was going to ask 100 people how many peanuts they thought were in that jar. And statistically, the average would have been closest to the right answer. So there's a tremendous power in teams. But there's also a problem in teams. And that is that there are certain dynamics that come to play that shortcut the power that teams can bring to things. And that's why if we think of our boards, we think of our organizations, so, you know, here we're together, we have these different things, but there are certain processes that impact the potential of teams, of groups, of boards, of, of different clusters of people. So the scripture reference is, hey, in a multitude of counselors, there's safety, great, but how do I get that group of counselors to really fulfill their potential? What is it that negatively impacts that group of counselors. A couple other quotations here, just look, let's look at them briefly as well, from Second Selected Messages 198. In making important decisions, we should study every side of the question. We are ever to remember that we are given a place in the work of God to act as responsible agencies. Love that phrase, study how many sides of the question? Every side, and we'll see how difficult that really is for us as we go through this time together. To really hear one another, to, to have good um, 
you know, enthusiastic discussion. Let, let, me, let me do a little test with you if I can, a little word association. So if I say, for example, red, what's the first word that comes to your mind? What? Bold. Okay. Stop. Oh, stop. Okay. Uh, what about revelation? John, prophecy? This group is pretty quiet over here. What? Apocalypse. Okay. What if I'm going to say conflict? Argument. What? <laughs> conflict of the ages. Oh, now that was really like totally a higher level. Blessings on you. <laughs> conflict, usually argument. You know, some of your facial expressions went, mm. uh, stomach gets tight. But if we're really to study every side of the question, we need to learn a way to foster healthy debate and dialogue. And we'll look at that. But again, if you take your paper, you'll notice that I have written down there some cognitive biases. And I've given you five blanks that I want you to fill out, help you remember them. And I want to use this story, this illustration, that took place at Mount, on Mount Everest. It was in 1996, May 8th through 10th, there were a number of teams trying to climb the world's highest mountain. There were two consulting teams. One was called Adventure Consultants by a man named Rob Hall and another consulting team called Mountain Madness by the name of Scott Fisher. Scott Fisher and Rob Hall were two premier climbers. They had both um, brought 30 plus clients to the top of Mount Everest. So these, these men were quite accomplished in what they did. Unfortunately, during that window of time when they were climbing Mount Everest, they both perished with six of their clients. One of the greatest tragedies that took place ever in the climbing of Mount Everest. And as we look back and we kind of think about what took place, certain functions of our mind, cognitive biases, things that just take place in the way we think, our prejudices, our, our normal way of thinking, occurred, which really hindered their decision-making process. So let's look at five of those right now. The first one is the sunk cost effect. I can kind of illustrate it. I'm not technological and I'm not an artist. But that's us, the way we're looking at the world, okay? And as we see things, it affects our thinking. And the sunk cost effect, uh, imagine that's a clock, a sunk cost effect impacts us because of the time or money that we've put into a situation. What is the sunk cost effect? A sunk cost, sunk cost effect is when we make decisions based on what's already happened in the past and not necessarily considering what's the best thing for right now. And there are lots of illustrations of this. If we think of Mount Everest, the clients, for example, all invested a significant amount of money. Each of the clients paid $65,000 for the privilege of climbing Mount Everest. It took them eight weeks to get prepared, to get 
you know, acclimatized to get ready for this. So there was a tremendous investment of both time and money in their energies. Now there was a rule, <coughs> and the rule states that at 2 o'clock you turn around, no matter where you are on the mountain. Why? Because you don't want to get on top of the mountain in the dark. Storms can come in it's much easier, quotes, unquote, to go up than it is to come down, and it's deadly to come down in the dark. But that turnaround time was egregiously ignored at that point in time. They were, they were moving up when they should have been coming down. What was one of the things that took place? Some cost effect. They already spent the money. They already put in the time. Now we do that a lot. I just recently was on a board and we were discussing loaning money to an organization. Our, this board had already loaned significant money to this other organization and hadn't gotten it back. So the, this other organization said, you know, we really need another loan or else we're going to lose everything. And so the sunk cost effect came upon our whole group as a board and we said, okay, we're going to loan them more money. Now, throwing good money after bad, you know, once you've spent the money, it's what? It's gone. And there's, you know, lots of illustrations um, about this. Uh, I'll give you a sports one if I can. From the National Basketball Association, it's been shown that individuals who are picked higher in the draft, in other words, they get paid more. If a team picks someone high in the draft and pays them more, even if they don't perform well, they'll get more playing time. Why? Well, we've already paid them. And so we need to get our money out. Well, you're not going to get your money out. Well, how does that impact us in organizations? There's plenty of times when we as organizations have invested a lot emotionally, a lot of time, a lot of energy into, you know, starting a new project, wanting to see it go, and, and it's really not getting off the ground. And maybe it's a time to study every side of the question and step back and say, okay, what at this point in time is the best thing to do? Rather than to keep throwing things after it because I've already, you know, spend so much to, to be involved. So some cost effect is very powerful. It comes out in investments, all, all different aspects of life. But it's something that we need to be aware of, that we become emotionally attached to things. I don't know if any of you have read the, ever read the book Freakonomics, Freakonomics 1, Freakonomics 2, two uh, economists and a writer, and they describe these model people called econs. And an econ will only do what's right all the time, regardless of anything else like that. But most of us are not like that. We're very emotional individuals. So the sunk cost effect played on Mount Everest. So they were going up. There was one man. This was his second try. And so he had invested a tremendous amount. And unfortunately, there was a tremendous loss, a loss of eight lives as they went up the mountain. Um, another bias, another cognitive bias, is called the overconfidence bias. Again, if we're kind of looking. You know, we call that the Superman or the Superwoman effect. The overconfidence bias. What is the overconfidence bias? Well, it's pretty plain. Is that we can do almost anything. Now, it's good to be confident. It's good to be optimistic. I'm not saying it's not. You know, we should have tremendous confidence. I can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens me. So how can I have overconfidence? Well, there are times when this sense of, well, I can accomplish everything causes us to make bad decisions. There's an organization they know in another country, and they were looking to purchase a piece of property. And they were sure they were going to raise the money, so they put $100,000 down to purchase this piece of property. They had a certain amount of time to purchase it, or they would lose their $100,000. They needed to raise over a million. They didn't succeed. In the process, they found another piece of property that they wanted to do something else on. One was like a training place and was going to be a health center. And so that property was also worth over a million dollars. They put another $100,000 down, thinking they were going to get the money. They lost both pieces of properties, and they lost $200,000. Overconfidence effect. You know, again, it's good to be optimistic. It's good to have confidence in what God's going to do for us and with us. But at the same time, we need to have a healthy sense of looking at every question from all different sides. Uh, a sense of, am I misreading something? Rather than just um, blasting through situations. Okay, another effect that took place on Mount Everest and, and let me say one more thing here on this overconfidence effect, that Rob Fisher, um, I think it was Fisher, said this, that we have Mount Everest, he called it the Big E, totally wired. We've built a yellow brick road to the top of the mountain. Now that is delusional. Yellow brick road, you know, Alice, not Alice in Wonderland, uh, what's her name? The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, thank you. Yellow Brick Road. Yellow Brick Road to the top of that mountain? No way. But these guys were overconfident in their abilities. And it caused them, uh, John Krakauer, who wrote a book on them, says that these guys were clinically delusional in their sense that, hey, now we can do this. So again, that's a, an important aspect of the overconfidence bias. Another. Good question. How can you distinguish overconfidence from faith? There's wisdom in teams. What would you say? How can you distinguish overconfidence from faith? Yeah. There's faith and then there's presumption. And there's something called grounded faith. If you have grounded faith, you've got something to base it on, something solid to base it on. And you, you have some knowledge that you're going in the right direction because you've had some indicators of that. You're not just going out there with Okay, the indicators, there's certainly a difference between faith and presumption. But the question is, well, how do we know? Desire of Ages makes an interesting point, you know, that uh, faith claims God's promise and brings forth fruit into obedience, unto obedience, where presumption takes God's promises and then leads us into disobedience. But if, for example, the illustration of the, the ministry that I talked about, you know, they both felt, they felt, you know, God told us to do this. My question for them would be, Really? How broadly did you counsel? And did you listen to the voices that said, this is a bad idea? See, overconfidence will cause us to just disregard those, and we'll, we'll see that a bit more as we talk, look at something else.
Mm -hmm. But so it's usually with sin and self and some other things that are lurking. Okay, it's a presumption more toward, again, disobedience, sin, and self. But there is a real question if we're involved in this ministry, you know, how do I know God's going to give me all this? Well, some just take the promise. Yes, but in a multitude of counsel, there is safety. Yes, brother? So you can say that eyesight from a Christian perspective would be to see what the Word of God or the Spirit of God advises about an issue. So that would be one way to use our hands to see what the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy says would give us kind of hindsight to look back. And now, about the sunk cost effect, how would you define it then? Just to bet on more? Uh, to, to define the sunk cost effect is committing more resources simply because we've already committed a significant investment, whether that investment is time. That's right. And, and it happens lots of places. Um, you don't get that yet. We already printed the brochures. We realize they're not conveying the right message, but we've already put the money into it, so we're going to mail them out anyway. Okay. We've put time and energy into something. You know, we've printed these brochures. Oh, really, they're not right. Yeah, but we already spent a couple thousand dollars. We have to go forward. No, you don't have to go forward because you've already lost that money. It's gone. Some cost effect. Okay. <laughs> um, some cost effect is when we continue to pour resources into a situation, project, ministry, only on the basis of our prior commitments. Not because we've analyzed it right now and we think, oh, this is still a good idea. But it's our prior investment, it's our prior commitment that pushes us. Okay. Hmm? Say it again? Pack up your losses and go home. You know, people have a hard time selling investment stocks or whatever because, well, I put money into it, you know? And some cost effect, another dimension of it is really admitting, you know, I was wrong. Boy, we don't like doing that. Okay? Six years as you were working. And then, boom. And you started. It took off and, and we closed with no debt. And, and so, I mean, even Elvis Mickey came and circled the building and said, poor thing, you know. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know if you heard, she said someone came, Elder Frizzini looked at their restaurant and said, oh, you poor things. Yeah, I mean, the building itself was horrible. So. Okay, so here's an illustration. They started a ministry, but it took them six years for it to be profitable. And then they closed, and when they did close, they were completely out of debt. If all you took was, oh, some cost, you know, then you probably would have said, well, I'm done with this. But there are other factors. My point in highlighting these are, these are factors for us to watch out for as we make decisions. It's not like I'm going to make every decision based on how much time and energy I spent, but, you know, what's the bigger picture? What's motivating me to go forward? I would venture to say that what motivated you and Andre to keep going was not the fact that, hey, we put three years into it already, but you had a passion for ministry. And so there's a different motivation that's moving you forward. Okay? But as we stop and think, what's our best resources? We need to take this into account. Because so if we don't, we can be blindsided. Okay? Uh, so, 
overconfidence effect. Was that clear, everybody? So now let's talk about the uh, recency effect. And it's going to give you a little sunrise. Um, the recency effect is when we make mistakes, when we allow recent events to be the determiner of what we should do. And let me tie it back to the Everest account. For the past five years before this time, Fisher had never had a storm, never experienced a storm in May as he climbed Mount Everest. He had five years of recent events that said May is a good month. The previous five years, there were some years where no one could climb at all because there were terrible storms at that time. So the recency effect is when we simply allow recent events to focus our decision and we forget what's happened further in the past. Okay, so that's again a, a powerful thing. It's like, oh, well, this turned out well, and this turned out well. Okay, well, that turned out well, that turned out well. But what's your longer time frame? You know, if you, if you, can you keep looking back? Do you have a much longer track record of things turning well. So the recency effect causes us, again, potentially, not every time, to be simply deceived by what recently has happened. Now, of course, there's a flip side of that. We talk about uh, the start of Youth for Jesus at ASI. They did a meeting in, in Florida a number of years ago. It went well. And so they decided to do what? Continue. That's been a great thing. It's continued. Just because something is recent doesn't mean it automatically shouldn't figure into our, our decision process. But on the other hand, we need to be careful as we're talking about things, as we're looking at you know, what, what kind of decisions we should make for ministries or our boards or our personal lives, is how much weight we're giving to simply what took place recently. And so again, that uh, interestingly enough, there was another climber at Mount Everest. His name is David Brashears. He did the IMAX movie. Some of you might have seen. He was on the mountain the same time as Hall and Fisher were. As they were climbing up, he was climbing down. Why was he climbing down? He had a feeling that the weather was going to turn bad. He took, turned to two of his friends and said, uh, I really think we should go down. And how hard was that? Today, we're going down the mountain, and everybody else is going, what are you doing? Oh, beautiful sun sky. And, yeah, we just don't, you know, we just don't like this situation. And we'll talk a little bit more about intuition later. But they didn't let their recent effects, they had a longer history. They remembered some of the storms that could take place there. We need to have that as well. All right, well, let's look at something else. Um, I call this illusory correlations. Give you a couple of illustrations about this as well. And use an example of a friend of mine. Anybody know who that is? It's an octopus. Very good. I'm not such a bad artist. Do you know what his name is? No. <laughs> he's got a real name. Too many octopuses? Too many irons in the fire? No, he's got a name. He's a live octopus. His name is Paul. 
Oh, Paul. Do you remember Paul? Paul the octopus. Do you know what he did? He correctly predicted every game that Germany was going to play in the World Cup, whether they were going to win or lose, and then he predicted who was going to win the final in the World Cup. They would put two containers into his, with food into his tank and flags in each of the containers, and whichever container he went to first, that indicated that um, that team was going to win. And he correctly predicted all of Germany's wins and losses and who was going to win the final eight games. Now, if you could do that, that would be impressive. Is there any correlation between Paul and what happened in the World Cup? None at all. That's an illusory correlation. It looks like there's a connection, but there really isn't a connection. Let me give you another one um, from the National Foot Football League, the NFL. For many years, depending on if the team from the American League or the National League won the Super Bowl, that would indicate 85% of the time what direction the stock market was going to go. 85% of the time. 85% of the time. If you, uh, you know, if the AFL won, I forgot which one was going to go up or down, but 85% of the time, if the AFL won, let's say, the stock market was going to go up. If the NFL won, the stock market was going to go down. 85% of the time. AFC, NFC, sorry. Um, that's an illusory correlation. There is absolutely no connection between who wins the Super Bowl and what the stock market does. Do you believe that? I mean, you know, maybe it affects what? People's euphoria? Attitude. Attitude? Uh, maybe. But illusory correlations are dangerous as we sit in meetings. Because people, you know, they make connections where really there may not be connections. And so, as Ellen White said, we need to consider every side of the question. We need to probe people's assumptions. And just because A happened and then B happened does not mean that A caused B to take place. And one more, and this is the confirmation bias. And this is perhaps one of the most dangerous. And what the confirmation bias is, is that we only allow, generally speaking, information to come to us that fits our preconceived ideas or our prejudices. Okay, this is really very important. Confirmation bias. Um, there was a study done where a group of individuals were taken, and some of those were for the death penalty, some of those were against the death penalty. And they were all given the same studies to read. And then they were questioned, did any of the studies change your mind? What do you think the answer to that question was? No. You know, everybody read the same studies. Nobody was moved. Some of the studies showed that the death penalty was a deterrent. Some of the studies showed the death penalty was not a deterrent. Nobody's mind was changed. And then they asked a further question. What studies do you think were well written and well argued? The ones that support their point of view. The one that support their point of view. <laughs> Confirmation bias is tremendously difficult for us because we 
We want to read things, we look for things that support what we believe. Now there's an element of, of um, I want to say goodness, probably not the right word, but I'll say it. There's a benefit to this, let's put it that way. Certainly, you know, if we're studying the Bible and we're reading something and somebody gives us a, a tract that really we shouldn't keep Sabbath, we should keep Sunday, what's going to happen to us automatically? What's going to happen? We're going to have this little block and we're going to read everything through our filter. Okay, now it happens to be, I would argue, a true filter. Okay, in that case, it's a true filter. But imagine if you're giving a Bible study to somebody and they have this confirmation bias. They're going to read Bible texts that do what? Confirm their beliefs. That should give us way more patience with individuals. But the confirmation bias is dangerous, again, as we're sitting in a board meeting, we're sitting in a committee meeting, church board, whatever it is, trying to make a decision. We're going to look for things that confirm what we want. And we're going to discount those things that disagree with us. That's very dangerous. Because, you know, all these warnings can be coming to us, and we're like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, I don't believe that, I don't believe this, you know. Um, and, it, and it happens all the time and in many different situations. This is an interesting quotation. Again, my apologies that that isn't very bright or clear for you. But it says this, The most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. Okay? No matter how difficult it is, biblical truth, whatever, if they're open-minded, let's say, they'll be receptive and we can explain something to them. And it goes on, but the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he knows already, without a shadow of a doubt, what is laid before him. Ellen White over and over again says that we should come to the Word of God as learners. You know, that we should be open. I remember many years ago, uh, when I was doing some Bible work, I was studying with a Jehovah's Witness. And we were studying a number of topics, and then we came to the topic of the divinity of Christ. And I knew that he was prepared, pardon me, for certain arguments, certain Bible passages on the divinity of Christ. So I said, well, Lord, I, just show me. And you know, if I'm wrong, that's okay. Let me learn. And as I studied, the Lord showed me several different lines of argument or support for the divinity of Christ. And then when we went into this Bible study, um, he was totally unprepared. You know, he was ready for these arguments. The Lord had given me new evidence, and he was unprepared. How did it happen? To be open to learn new things. Yes? It's from Tolstoy, and I don't have it exactly with me. Sorry, I was going through my notes, and I forgot. But it's... Can you go back for just a second? Sure. Um, Hey, you could have the PowerPoint, that's true, if you'd like to write it down. So confirmation bias. So um, I think that was five, isn't it? Yes. Any questions on those cognitive biases? And believe me, just because you're a Christian and you're a Seventh-day Adventist doesn't mean you're immune to this. Yeah. It doesn't mean that once you get into a board, you know, everything works great. It doesn't. Boards are 
very interesting dynamics, strong personalities, able to sway things. We, we become quiet when we might be outspoken normally. There's a whole host of things that go through our minds that can positively or negatively impact our decisions. Great. Yeah, good illustration. I want to get married. I don't care what you say, that's happening. And again, Ellen White gives great counsel there. You know, we should be less confident in, you know, in the sense of being headstrong in this than in any other area. Okay, let me go forward. You have that? Uh, this is a great picture on the confirmation bias. And you look at the stars, and all the stars are saying no, but no, I see a constellation. And the constellation says yes. Okay, it's the overconfidence bias. It's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous as we, you know, try to navigate things. We need to be self-distrustful. Like Paul says in Corinthians, you know, that any man that thinks he knows anything knows nothing as he yet ought. Okay. I just thought of a, something for the recency effect also. I was going to share it, but I forgot. I'll share it with you now. You know, the, you read the stories of King David's battles. There's a time where David asked the Lord, should I go up? And the Lord said, yes, go up. And he gave him victory. And then there was a battle just two verses later. I think it's in, it's in Samuel, second Samuel or in 1 Kings. 2 Samuel. It's in 2 Samuel. And then the next time, should I go up? And the answer is, no, don't go up. We're going to do something different. And just because God worked one way in the past doesn't mean he's going to do the exact same thing now. We need to be open. Okay, God, how are you going to impact this? Help me to be a learner. Help me to gain the most from the team that I work with. Jericho and Anak, another good thing. Yeah, go up. Great, let's go up. No, we're not supposed to go up. Entering into the promised land. All sorts of examples where, well, this is what happened. This is what should happen. So we need to be very careful about that, that that's not always the case. Who is that? The Gibeonites. Without... Okay, good. They did not have good point. The Gibeonites came. All right, let's flip over to the next page here. And I want to talk about fostering healthy debate and ways that we can foster healthy debate. This is really important. I find it to be one of the greatest weaknesses of organizations that I work with is that people feel a lot of things and they'll say them other places than the appropriate place. And there's lots of reasons why that takes place. Some of it is some people are just that way and they're undermining. Other people you know, don't feel comfortable or perhaps there's not the right atmosphere created where people can feel, yes, uh, we can discuss things. So we're going to try to help with that. And let's, let's go on. On your paper here, I have two sides of conflict, both cognitive and affective conflict. Cognitive contact, conflict is a discussion on the issues. It's on the, you know, what is the issue at hand? Um, somebody said that when you can identify the problem, the solution jumps out at you. 
you can identify the problem, the solution jumps out at you. Lots of times we talk and we talk and we talk, but we haven't clearly said, okay, this is what we're trying to solve. And uh, I was in a meeting yesterday, as a matter of fact, we were talking in kind of all different directions. You know how conversations go, kind of like tendrils of those vines that grow in Tennessee that just grow all over the place. You know, conversations just move around. But it's important for us to identify the point. So cognitive conflict is we're disagreeing about X. Affective conflict is much more emotional. I've had a disagreement with you before, and I know that every time I talk to you, this is what you say. I'm not listening to you. I'm emotionally responding. You know, maybe you've hurt me in the past, maybe we've disagreed in the past. Oh, you always say that. That's an emotional conflict. That is really harmful to an organization. But cognitive conflict, real good discussion on the issues, is really helpful and healthful. Now that only happens uh, you know, when there's a good level of trust. You know, there's certain people that I really know and I really trust, and we can disagree really strong, and I can be very plain, you know, this is your weakness, or they can tell me mine, and we still appreciate one another, because there's this level of trust. When there's not a level of trust, most of the conflict will be more emotional, focused on personalities rather than issues. And boards make bad decisions. Oh, we're thinking of a committee. What committee? Who should we put on this committee? Oh, well, you know, we don't want to hurt their feelings, so we'll put them on the committee. They may be horrendous committee members. That's a bad reason to put somebody on a committee. And for somebody to be able to say, you know, I really don't think that's a good reason, and not offend somebody, that's a tremendous strength to an organization. Um, so, um, you know, what are some ways that we can mitigate some of some ways that we can calm down or quiet down effective conflict and raise cognitive conflict. First of all, one way would be, I'll just give you a few ideas here. One is to require vigorous debate. To not allow people to nod, you know, but not really agree to require vigorous debate. Another idea would be to prohibit language that triggers defensiveness. Uh, I was working with an organization, we were kind of doing a strategic plan and there were some issues and we laid some ground rules, we'll talk about that in a minute as well, and one of those rules was no responding emotionally. You could respond with questions, you could respond, you know, um, uh, you know, for clarification, but you couldn't react, let me put it that way. Emotion is good in conflict as well, in its right place. But in that meeting, we were talking and somebody said something, and I could see the president of the organization was just about to get out of his seat and react. I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, clarification question? And then he sat back down, and, you know, breathed a little bit, and then he asked a clarification question. But too often we, you know, we react. So to prohibit inflammatory language, let's say that way, to break up coalitions. In lots of boards there are what somebody calls fault lines, where there's this cluster of people that hang together, sit together, eat together, talk together. And then there's the other group. We'll try to break those up by mixing people up into smaller groups. Um, 
And so these are just some ideas to move from one to another. Let me give you an illustration of a gentleman, an architect, uh, who designed this building in New York City. This is the city core building in New York City. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's got a huge central pillar. And then it has four columns. But notice the columns are not at the corners. The columns are on the sides. It's a very unusual architectural point of view. And um, you know he had to build it to withstand certain winds and everything. And about five years after they built it, there was an undergraduate student, undergraduate student, at MIT, and his teacher said, "Oh, why don't you know? He's looking for a project. Why don't you examine this building? Because it was a very interesting architectural feat." And so when the student, undergraduate student, ran through some of his calculations, he came up with the conclusion that the building was not safe. And that if a certain wind came, which could happen in New York City, and hit the corner of the building, it would cause the building to fall. That was his conclusion. He's an undergraduate student. He contacts the architect. And he says, you know, these are my conclusions. What do you think the architect did? Get lost, thanks, but no thanks. No, fantastic. The architect said, really? And he took the documents, and he began to examine it. He ran his own recalculations, and he found out the student was right. And he went to the owners of the building and said, look, we need to do some structural changes. You know, and they did some supporting in the building. But here was an individual, well-known architect, who listened to an undergraduate student. And yeah, thank God. Can you imagine if he didn't and the building collapsed? You know, that is, that's really, it's humility, it's listening, it's being open to influence from information from places we wouldn't normally see. Yes, sir. Maybe the engineer wouldn't have been. <laughs> that, that may be true. But this architect's reputation was on the line as well. So, okay, so, you know, conflict. How to generate good conflict. And we have in meetings, we look for different ways to discuss things. I've given you on the paper again six discussion hats. Um, I like different illustrations. They kind of stick in our mind better than just words. And I like to, yes, sir. It's true that when we're sitting in a board or a committee, whatever it is, let's talk about boards, nonprofit boards, uh, you know, we're people. And so there's all this feeling and emotions. And one thing that I found helpful is to try to do some board education and talk about some of these things. A little bit further on, I've got some tips for before, during, and after discussions. But 
education of the organization is really important. You know, to lay some of these things out. So, you know, I think we made a mistake here, and this is why I think we made a mistake here. To, to try to educate people is the only way. Certainly, we're not going to insulate everybody's feelings. That's, that's never going to happen until translation. Um, but at least we can move in a direction. So in any setting, there are different viewpoints, and we need to learn to appreciate the different viewpoints. So here are my six hats for fostering healthy debate. I got a white hat, and I call this hat the facilitator. This might be the chairperson's role, it might not be. But the facilitator is really trying you know, to, to draw people out, to look for individuals that aren't talking, and, and try to get all ideas out on the table. That's the facilitator viewpoint. And again, in a real life setting, you know, ideally a chairperson would, would have this role, but sometimes we're sitting around the lunch table and we're talking different ideas. So you know, this is just one tool for having good conflict. The next hack is the problem finder. You know, in every organization, there's the guy that sees the problems. And you know, you, those visionary people say, hey, look, I got a great idea. And the problem finder is, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And depending on the relationship, that can like, completely dampen the, the energy of the vision person. But problem finders are necessary. By the way, let me uh, share this. You know, a lot of people talk about setting goals. You've heard motivational people talk about setting goals, setting goals. And setting goals is good. I set a lot of goals personally. But did you know that most people would prefer to solve problems rather than set goals? Well, I, mean, I could ask you, you know, what, do you, what, what energizes you more? Setting a goal with a list of things or looking at problems and figuring out how to solve them? You know, it's, it's interesting. I talked to somebody and they told me that I saved their marriage simply by highlighting that because she was a goal setter and he was a problem solver. You know, they're kindly crossing each other all the time. But problem solvers are necessary. Unfortunately, a lot of problem finders are viewed as simply being obstructionist. That's not necessarily true. Say it again. Troublemakers. Troublemakers. Yeah, how come you just don't get on board? In our office, we have a problem finder. It's, it's Janelle. We come up with a good idea and she's like, okay, well, what about this and what about that? That's a tremendous strength if we can embrace it. Okay? And sometimes we need to get the problem finder involved because they are usually very good at solving problems as well. If they're just bringing them up and they're not finding a solution, that's a different issue. Okay. In, in some kind of conversations, there's the very rational individual, the objective, give me the data, let me look at this, you know, kind of look at things from an organizational viewpoint, just a bit Dr. Spockish, if I can use that illustration, cold and objective, just wanting the data. Then there are individuals that are just totally optimistic and upbeat, visionary people. You know, here's a new idea, and it's a great idea. Yes. An objective data-driven, you know, kind of not taking the cognitive concept to an extreme. Again, then there's the visionary people. They're upbeat, they're great, let's, let's keep going, let's move forward. You need individuals like that 
as well. Truth is, you need all of these in a conflict point of view. And if, if your group has talked about it, and you've had perhaps some training, or looked at some of these issues, and people can realize, you know, it's a tremendous interesting phenomenon as I talk to different boards about different hats, people in the boards will pick up that expression. For example, okay, I'm going to take my uh, you know, rational hat off and I'm going to put on my problem hat for a second. And it's okay, great. Now I know where you're coming from. And let's examine things like that. So optimistic, visionary person. Then there are the intuitive emotional. And when I say intuitive emotional, I'm not simply meaning that they're reacting emotionally uh, or that they're lashing at people emotionally. But certain individuals have an intuitive sense of the way things should go. They're not always right, but many times they are. I was reading a, an account of a firefighter. He was captain of the firefighting team, and they went in, and there was a small kitchen fire. And so they were putting out the kitchen fire, but it wasn't going out. And as the captain stood there, he was like, something's wrong. And all of a sudden, without any real rational reasons, he said, everybody out of the building. And a few minutes later, the floor collapsed. And as you know, process was done to trying to find out, well, how did you know this? Well, ESP. Well, not really ESP. He noticed certain things subconsciously. It was way too hot in the room. The fire wasn't going out. There was no noise. Things just didn't add up intuitively to him. And so he called everybody out and saved their lives. And so in, in meetings like that, we also need to learn to appreciate those individuals who may not have the rational data for it, but they have this sense that this is good or this is not good. And lastly, people that think out of the box, you know, imaginative, freewheeling, how are we going to do this? You know, they just look for new ways, new ideas to bring things together. Sometimes those people drive me crazy. Um, but they're good to have in an organization. Do you have a question? Yes, if we try to pigeonhole them. Well, if we pigeonhole a person as the objective person when they're actually the problem finder, or they're the imaginative, we misread what they say. Yes. Being fact when it's not fact, it is based upon other categories. So if we have a perception of this person as X, we could mishear what they're saying. Yeah, if we, if we think of them as the Mr. Spock. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good point. And just as you said that, I could think of a board meeting I was in, and somebody was sharing, and it was a treasurer, and he's always cold and calculating, but he was being very gut in that situation. Good, good, good illustration that sometimes we look at people as objective or something, and then we find out that they're really coming from a different perspective. Yes. In different situations. Certainly. Excellent, excellent point. People can wear different hats, come from different perspectives, given the situation, given the dynamic of the people and the relationships with those people, and at times the issue. But again, 
to heighten our awareness of this and say, okay, this is taking place. Um, where am I? How am I responding? Now, I'm much more of an intuitive person. I get into board meetings, I find out what the issue is, and in about 30 seconds I have the answer. Um, at least I think I have the answer. And then I have to sit through the whole board meeting until everybody else gets the answer. Not really. Uh, lots of times I'm wrong. But my point is that's, you know, that's how I, I react to things. I make intuitive, fast decisions. I go shopping, it takes me 30 minutes, you know, I'm done. Um, I don't labor over issues. Other people do. And, and we need to learn to appreciate one another's strengths and to realize, you know, you could really be wrong. In fact, you probably are. So really listen to this other person. Okay, right. um, let's continue going on here. And another tool to stimulate good conflict, good discussion, is to appoint somebody. People usually call this the devil's advocate, but I don't like that title. Um, so I've nicknamed it the examiner. Now, what is the role of the examiner? Their role is to find faults, weaknesses, misassumptions, wrong assumptions in other people's presentations. And that's their role. They're the examiner. They have full right, full freedom to really challenge what somebody else presents. Now, let me give you two illustrations, both from the um, presidency of John F. Kennedy. Shortly after Kennedy came, became president, he was presented with a plan by the CIA to invade Cuba. Some of you might remember this. It was called the Bay of Pigs fiasco. And the CIA presented this plan. And the idea was they were training in Panama a group of insurgents. The idea was they were going to drop them off on the beach in Cuba, and that the populace would rise up and support them, and they would overthrow Fidel Castro. And if, in fact, it didn't happen that way, they could simply, simply melt away, quote unquote, into the woods, to the mountains, and be safe. Whole plan was totally flawed. First of all, the woods, the mountains, were 80 miles away from the beach. You know, no way you're going to melt into the mountains when you have to cross that much territory. Um, who thought that the people in Cuba were going to support them? And as you look at this whole thing, there was this whole dynamic of people were invested. The CIA was very invested in having this take place, some cost effect. They had spent time and energy training in Panama. Here they had all this organization, and there came this whole culture of, you know, well, we're already down the road. The ship's out of the port. We have to go through it. Terrible disaster. Uh, Castro was ready. Most of the men were captured and killed. Terrible disaster for the United States, public relations and everything. A few years later, there was another crisis with Cuba, and that was the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Russia was putting nuclear warheads on the island of Cuba. How should they respond? Well, Kennedy, to his credit, had learned from his previous mistake. And he began to examine things that went wrong. And so what he did for the Cuban Missile Crisis, he formed different teams, and he appointed his brother, Robert Kennedy, as the examiner. And his role was, everybody knew it, his role was to look at every single plan that people, people 
put forth, and basically it was two plans. Should we do a blockade, or should we you know, attack? What should we do? Um, but they examined those plans, kept pushing, kept pushing, kept pushing. A much better plan arose than would have if they had just followed along with their group think. So this is an important dynamic, to have somebody in the team that everybody knows, okay, you've got the right to probe. I'll do that sometimes. I'll even say, hey, look, I'm going to be the examiner today, and I explain to people what it is, and then just challenge their assumptions. And then challenge the opposite assumptions. Because really what we want is the best decision, right? I mean, we're not really concerned that it's our idea or somebody else's idea. We're not really concerned with our reputation. What we really want is the best decision. So that's, that's really important as well. Let's move on a bit here. I've got a few things I'm going to give you a bit quickly as we're winding down in time. Before the discussion takes place, it's helpful to establish these three R's. First is rules. What are the ground rules for the discussion? You know, no personal attacks, openness, ground rule for discussion, um, asking for clarification rather than just responding. You know, whatever the ground rules are that your organization wants to use, what are the values you think, hey, these are really important. Transparency, respect, these are the rules that we lay out before we're going to enter into any kind of dialogue. Well, every organization may say different rules, but some rules that I would say is... You three R's. Yeah, well, I'm giving you three. Second R is roles. To, to, first thing would be to establish the rules for your team. The second thing would be to ask people to place themselves mentally in other person's roles. So if you're the, you know, you're the chair of the organization, what's it like to view this situation from the worker's point of view? Um, you know, if you're the head elder, what's it like to look at this from the Sabbath school superintendent's point of view? To try to ask the group to consider different people's positions and roles. And lastly, that, that we have respect in, among our discussion. And that's very clear, that we're going to respect one another, we consider each other better than ourselves, Philippians 2.5, right? We want to hear what each person has to say. So that's before we even get into some tough discussions. You know, we can set certain rules. This is what we want. We want clarity. We want transparency. We want openness. We want confidentiality, whatever those rules are. And then, again, let's broaden this out. Put yourself in somebody else's position as we're discussing this issue. And again, let's treat one another with respect. During the meeting, during the uh, presentation, certain things we can do here to help the conversation move along. One of them is to reframe the situation. What does that mean, to reframe the situation? But basically, just, you know, let's, we're looking at the problem from this diagonal. Let's take a different picture. Um, some of you might have been involved or heard of strategic planning. I'm sure some of you have. And 
you've probably heard of a SWOT analysis, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And it's very interesting that a lot of studies have shown that if we see something as a threat or as a loss, we will pour more resources into it. It's probably the sunk cost effect coming into play. So if something's a threat, we're going to put more resources into it. Unfortunately, when we view things as a threat, we kind of become rigid in our thinking. So if an individual buys a stock and the stock goes down and they lose money, well, they don't want to just sell it, which might be the best thing. You know, it's a threat, so what are they going to do? Well, I'm going to buy more of it because now the price is down. I hope I'm going to get my money back. You know, endless cycle. But threats tend to motivate organizations to do something, but unfortunately constrict the thinking. Opportunities free up thinking. So if we're looking at a problem, talking about reframing here, if we're looking at a problem in an organization, if we describe it first as a threat, well, they might motivate people, but then we need to reframe it as an opportunity to free up the creative juices. Take newspapers and the internet age. You know, many newspapers were losing uh, sales of hard copies. And so some newspapers, all they did was they put their print edition on the web. Well, that wasn't very creative. That was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Some said, okay, it's a threat. Let's put money into it. Here's a whole division. You should think about how to do it, but be creative and think of new ways to do it, and created blogs and video embedding and things like that. So reframing a situation is important, especially if um, we're, we're bogged down. You know, if we're looking at it as a threat, let's maybe look at it as an opportunity, something like that. Again, yes? That might be more re-describing, which is my next thing. Reframing is, okay, you know, is this really a threat? Well, let's now look at it as an opportunity. Let's kind of turn it around. Re-describing, they're close, they're similar, and maybe you could do it that way. Um, you know, instead of looking at, hey, we're in a financial crisis, is it an opportunity to become leaner? Um, sometimes that's just semantics, but it helps the decision-making process. Yes, sir. What's this? This is a, a technique for helping organizations plan for the future, and it stands for strengths. You would list an organization's strengths, their weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And then, just keep moving on, to revisit. Um, and what I mean by revisiting is to ask people to revisit their assumptions. Okay, you came into this meeting, this was your assumption. Has our conversation at all changed any of your assumptions? Has anything anybody said in this argument, in this discussion, caused you to rethink your position? No. no. I'm not moving. You know, that happens. <laughs> but hopefully, well, 
yes, I haven't really looked at it that way, but I still think we should do x because of y. At least we're trying to you know, capture information from other people. We're trying to hear from one another. And then at the end of a uh, meeting, we need to take time to reflect. This is, again, what Kennedy did after the Bay of Figs fiasco. He stepped back and thought, what went wrong? He actually, uh, it was interesting, he contacted Dwight Eisenhower and tried to get advice from him. And he, the advice he wanted, Kennedy wanted from Eisenhower was, you know, um, you know, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? But Eisenhower said, what was your process for making a decision? Kennedy didn't really have a process. He hadn't sat down and thought, this is the way we're going to decide. But that's very important to think, what is our decision process going to be like? Most of the time we just get in there and talk and make decisions. So reflecting, looking out and saying, okay, so what have we done in the past? What worked? What did not work? Repair. In every conflict, somebody gets hurt. No matter how much you might want to avoid it, and we do want to avoid it, we need to repair relations with people. You need to go back and say, you know, this wasn't personal against you. We do appreciate what you've done. Try to repair some of the, the issues that have taken place. Uh, and then we need to remember what kind of lessons can we carry over into our next um, session, into our next learning. What, what good examples of good conflict came from the organization. Any questions so far? Four minutes left. I was afraid I had too much material. Any questions? I don't want to rush through the last few points, but I, I might. Any questions? Say that again? <laughs> It'll take more than four minutes to have the questions. Oh, that's great. It's <laughs> cute. Let's see if I can re-describe, re-describe with other words. Uh, re-describe, okay, so trying to think of an illustration of a problem. Um, re-describing would try to state the problem in a different way. That's really important because when we come to a situation and we think this is the problem and we're, you know, we're, we're going down this track, sometimes we need to say, okay, well, let's back up before we make a final decision and let's examine it down a different track. Let's look at it from a different point of view. So that would be re-describing, re-describing. Yes, sir. Well, consensus, a lot of people... If we support unanimously, then everybody's happy. If one person's opposed to it, it's dead. Okay. I would question whether that's a good method. I know a lot of organizations use it. I would question whether it's a good method because what it says is one person can veto the majority. Now, there's certain organizations that have a policy, Intel is one of them, and their policy is disagree and commit. And that is, in the, in the session, in the meeting, you can disagree completely. Once the decision's made, 
you need to be on board. Now, it's probably working good for your organization, and, and I'm not trying to change yours, but I'm just saying that there's another side to that um, consensus. We've been using it for 15 years, and it works great. Good. Good. <laughs> Depends on the purpose of the organization as well. All right, I think we're going to stop. It's 12 o'clock or just about 12 o'clock, and we need to draw to a close. What I'm going to do is just put up your last five points on the slide on the screen if you want to stay by and write them down. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thanks very much for coming, and I hope you have a good rest of ASI. I can read those. Fear of marginalization. Some people don't want to speak up because they fear they're going to be marginalized in a meeting. Uh, to encourage people that nothing's going to happen to them is helpful. Number two problem as to why problems hide is because sometimes there's lack of open communication. People feel afraid of communicating. Um, she would have it back. Sometimes there are gatekeepers. What's a gatekeeper? Gatekeepers are indi individuals who filter information from the leader. Maybe a secretary, maybe a vice president, somebody that doesn't let all the information, because they don't want to upset the president or whoever, so all the information doesn't flow through. That's a weakness. Lack of intuition and lack of experience looking for problems. Those are all dynamics that cause problems to hide. If you sit on a board, a church, organization, foundation, whatever, and you come to the board meeting and everything's wonderful, you should begin to ask questions. Really, are there some problems that we're not surfacing? How can we surface them? These are some reasons problems hide, working to opposite to those to minimize marginalization, to improve communication, will help problems come to the top. Yes, sir. Right. To align themselves in a certain way. I think even if you try to pull out things, this tends to happen. Now, um, how. I know it's, it's a difficult question to answer. Well, it's a very good question. Individuals have information and they don't always share it. They're selective in the information they share. That's, that's a, it's a real problem. It's very difficult. You know, so the leader, the chairperson, or the team itself needs to be very proactive in mining for information. Now, some people feel like, well, if I say this, I'm going to get whacked. They should know that, no, this is the place to share it. Okay. But, Right. It's a continual education process. Keep 
going over things, keep developing your board, keep giving board trainings, bringing issues up when there isn't an issue so that you can have a conversation about how to design. Okay, well, thank you very much. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.